0: This morning as we continue our our look at the doctrine of God's decree, we want to begin, uh, I'm going to read here in a moment, the the whole first chapter of the book of Ephesians. As we look today, our our task is to look at paragraphs 5 and 6. I'm going to combine these, I think they're they're helpful for us to consider them together. And what we find, particularly in paragraph 5, are phrases, compounded phrases, layered phrases, that almost all come, in some cases, word for word, out of the first chapter of the book of Ephesians. You know, often when we think about the doctrine of election, as, as you get into, you see these, these, whether it's a social media debate, or you watch a YouTube video, or you see someone who's ranting against Calvinism, or the, the novice Calvinist tried to make his case Uh, the the text that's usually chosen is Romans 9. And it's Jacob and Esau. It's certainly an appropriate text to consider. It's it's, it's significant in the overall landscape, but it's not the only passage. In fact, in some ways, Ephesians chapter 1 puts all these concepts together in one place. And, And Paul just delights and glories in God's eternal decree worked out in time, according to his electing grace, and in which he, he, he calls people to faith in Christ by his Holy Spirit. He justifies them, adopts them, sanctifies them, preserves them, and ultimately sets a promise upon them to glorify them. And we want to consider in, in these, these two paragraphs today, 5 and 6, how this election is worked out. We've been working through the doctrine of the decree, where we start with the premise that God from all of eternity decrees everything whatsoever comes to pass. And then we saw over the last two weeks that 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 decree has as its particular focus election of men and angels. Well, then we're going to see today that that particular focus gets even a little bit sharper as the lens turns not from men and angels in general, but to mankind specifically, and specifically to mankind fallen in Adam. So let's pray and ask for the word to help us as we consider uh, this this particular aspect of the doctrine of predestination and election according to God's eternal decree. So let's pray. Father, these are wonderful, majestic, and yet deep thoughts, deep doctrines, deep waters in which We abide this morning, we pray for your help, we pray for your Holy Spirit to to cause our hearts to not only to understand these things, but to delight in them, to cause our our hearts to swell with reverence of you, our Holy Father, of praise and adoration and devotion to our Lord Jesus Christ, of praise uh, to you, Holy Spirit, for the gift of life, for the gift of understanding the deep things of God. We pray for your help, and we confess that apart from the Spirit's work, we will have no hope to understand these things. We will have no hope to abide in them and to believe in them for eternal life. We pray for Christ's sake that you will give us the help that we need today. Amen. Let's read, first of all, let's read Ephesians chapter 1, and then I'm going to read this first so that when we read paragraph 5 of, of our confession of chapter 3, The the, the language should be immediately familiar. This is the word of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. For this reason, because I have heard your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. And then as I read paragraph 5 in chapter 3, I think you'll recognize most of the phrases that are found here. And and the point is that our fathers in the faith, and, and, and by the way, the language here is, I think, identical to Westminster. Our fathers in the faith wanted to confess things just as the scriptures articulated them. Uh, There was not a need to add words where it was unnecessary. So in paragraph 5, it says, those of mankind. Remember in paragraphs 3 and 4, there's the phrase, some men and angels are predestinated. Then in paragraph 4, these angels and men thus predestinated and foreordained. Then in paragraph 5, those of mankind. See, the difference is, with angels, there were some that were predestinated to eternal life, and some to death. But for those predestinated to death, those fallen angels, there is no hope of rebirth. There is no hope of new life. There is no hope of regeneration. But for those fallen in Adam, there is such hope, those who were elected from eternity, those who were predestined to life. So that's where paragraph 5 begins, those of mankind that are predestinated to life. God, before the foundation of the world was laid, according to his eternal and immutable purpose, and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will hath chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory out of his mere free grace and love without any other thing in the creature as a condition or cause moving him there unto. So nothing outside of God has moved God before the foundation of the world was laid to elect those in his own beloved Son. And what we find here in this paragraph the election of mankind unto life, we need, there's four things that we need to note that are, that are of critical importance in the paragraph. One is that all of this is of God. All of it is of God. And as we think about reading the confession sideways, that ought to take our minds back to chapter 2. And all that we have confessed as true about this majestic, holy, 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 holy God we, we, is, is all focused and weighted on that one little phrase those of mankind that are predestinated to life, God, the one who is triune, the one who is most holy, most just, most wise in all that he does, it is he who has elected. It is the nature of the triune God to demonstrate himself in this doctrine of election. But secondly, the decree is both eternal And immutable the election of of fallen men men who have fallen in Adam their election is eternal and it's immutable now last time we looked at this idea of immutability that's expressed in paragraph 4 but it was immutability with respect to the number the number of men and angels elected to life was fixed that number could not be added to it could not be increased it could not be decreased or diminished But in this case, we we want to think about immutability from a slightly different vantage point. It's with respect to fulfilling the glorious purposes of God. It's not going to change. Not only is the number certain and fixed, but the reality of of election, the reality of God's decree coming to pass precisely as he ordained it, cannot change. It's eternal. It's rooted in God himself, and it will not change. So it's, it's of God. It's eternal and immutable. And thirdly, it's in Christ. Election is necessarily a Trinitarian doctrine. There is no doctrine of election apart from a doctrine of the Trinity. It is God the Father who elects from eternity. It is God the Father who sends the Son to accomplish the redemption in time and space. And it is the Holy Spirit who effectually calls and applies that work of redemption to the people whom God the Father has elected from eternity. So here we see Again, reflecting the language of Ephesians one, that God hath chosen in Christ under, unto everlasting glory. This is why we see repeated phrases from our Lord in the Gospels. Things like, "If you've seen me, you've seen the Father also," or He says, "There is no no. You cannot come to the Father apart from me. I am the way, the truth, and the life." The doctrine of election is necessarily Trinitarian. But it's also, we see, it's unconditional. It's unconditional. This is the U in the the classic Calvinistic tulip, right? The T for total depravity, the U for unconditional election. There's nothing that God foresaw in you or me that said, based on what I foresee growing or developing in them, I will choose them. The election is completely unconditioned upon anything in the creature. It's conditioned not only the individual creature, but all the circumstances surrounding that creature and every other creature. You know, it, it's mind-boggling to think of the infinite permutations. It, it, it's, it's. When I was a kid, one of my favorite things was those choose-your-own-adventure books where you'd read and you'd get to about page 13, and then say, so, well, if you want to do this, you go to page 19. If you want to do this, you go to jump to page 25. And with all of the complexities of this creation, all the complexities, even in just your own life, as you meditate and contemplate upon individual choices that you have made and where those have taken you, and you can look back and see, it's easier to look back and see the the, the, the pathways and look, kind of, looking backwards down the fork, it's easier to understand where where decisions were made and what they led to, and then you can imagine, if I hadn't chosen that at that point, how much different my life would be in every respect. Well, imagine that with presently, what, the rest of it is 8 billion people on the planet? And that's just in the present moment, not counting all of the human beings and all of history and the various inner workings together, and yet... The decree of God is not conditioned upon the activity of any one individual man or the cumulative activity of all mankind. There is nothing that can change or thwart or undo or even just move off bevel by one degree. The plan and the purposes of God. His decree is unconditional. Chad Van Dixhorn summarizes it this way, weaving together multiple passages that are referenced here in both the Westminster Confession and in the Second London Confession. He says this, in one way or another, this is what Paul says to the Ephesians, to Timothy, and to the Thessalonians. We are predestined through Jesus Christ, Ephesians 1.5. His purpose for us is set forth in Christ, Ephesians 1.9. His grace is given us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, 2 Timothy 1.9. In short, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Thessalonians 5.9. And all of this is not only done for God's glory, but for, our own, for, but for our own. For those God predestines, He also calls. And those whom He calls, He also justifies. And those whom He justifies... He also glorifies, Romans 8.30. And I love this statement, God had our crown in view long before our creation. Long before our creation, God had our crown in view. The ulti- See, sometimes when we, when we meditate upon God's decree, the skeptic will immediately go to the fall. If God is so good, why did he allow that? Why did he allow sin? But where is the focus of the scriptures? From the very beginning, God is focused on what? The crown that he will give to undeserving fallen men. God's focus, the scriptures focus, is upon the glorification of Christ and the glorification of all of his brothers and sisters with him. So, it, the, the election of mankind unto life is of God. It's, it's eternal and immutable. It is, it is in Christ and it's unconditional. But there's something else that's very important that we have to think about with respect to the logical flow into the next paragraph. In paragraph six, we wrestle with the question of means. Okay, God has elected from all of eternity, it's immutable. It's, it's unconditional. These things are going to come to pass. All that God has elected in Christ will come to faith, will be justified, will be adopted, will be sanctified, will be preserved, and ultimately glorified. But how? By what means is this going to happen? That's the subject of paragraph 6. Not necessarily... Spelling out those means, although I want to look at that today, but spelling out the fact that there are specified means that God has decreed by which all things will come to pass. And particularly, especially, because this is the focus, the redemption of the elect. So let's look at paragraph 6. It begins with, this is, this is a phrase that, that's drawing from the first, pre, the first five paragraphs, as God hath appointed the elect unto glory. The first five paragraphs establish that fact. And since that's true, so he hath, by the eternal and most free purpose of his will, foreordained all the means thereunto. You hear the logic. Because these things are true, because God has immutably, eternally, unconditionally, predestinated and elected all those whom he has appointed to life, he has also appointed the means by which his decree will take place. It goes on, Wherefore, they who are elected, being fallen in Adam, are redeemed by Christ, are effectually called unto faith in Christ by his Spirit working in due season, are justified, adopted, sanctified, and kept by his power through faith, Unto salvation neither are any other redeemed by christ or effectually called justified adopted sanctified and saved but the elect only so the subject of of paragraph 6 is is twofold one we're, we're looking at the various saluti or salutus you, you you've heard the the term ortodoxalutus which is the order of salvation or the Historia Salutis, the history of salvation. How is this salvation worked out in time? And all this is is rooted and grounded in the Pactum Salutis. This is the covenant of salvation, or the covenant of redemption, an eternal covenant between God the Father and God the Son. But here, with paragraph 6, we see the means by which God's eternal decree of election proceeds unto, unto glory. So how do we get from man... Eternally elected, according to the eternal wisdom and counsel and purpose of God, fallen in Adam, and yet ultimately glorified. How do we get from here to here to here? The answer is the ordo salutis. It's spelled out here. Justified, adopted, sanctified, and kept. Preserved unto glory. But we also see the Historia Salutis. This this is the, the working out of this. This wasn't hypothetical. This wasn't theoretical. There was an actual covenant made between God the Father and God the Son in eternity, but that covenant then bears fruit where we actually live in time, in space. See, someone is elected from eternity, but they're not saved from eternity. They're not justified from eternity. A man or a woman who's elected to life is justified at a particular point in time. Now, that person may not even know when that time, that specific time happened. I, I couldn't tell you precisely when I came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I can give you probably a window of time. But I know it happened in time. The elect are not born justified. The elect are not born sanctified. The elect are not born adopted, and we are certainly not born glorified, are we? These things work themselves out according to God's election in time. The Historia Salutis tells us that God sends His Son. Look at paragraph six. They are redeemed by Christ. They are effectually called unto faith in Christ by His Spirit working. Here's the key phrase, in due season. In due season. See, sometimes those, those concepts of justification and election can get mashed up together, can get conflated. And it is true, we are elected from all of eternity, unconditionally, immutably, before we were ever born, before we were ever made. And yet, our actual justification, the effectual call of the Spirit of God, happens in a place a physical place it happens physically according to time according to this created order and what we find is this this is as we think about again the confession sideways this is anticipating some important concepts that will come in chapter 7 we see the covenant a covenant made in eternity but also a covenant made with Abraham and that covenant increased by farther steps until the full covenant of grace is revealed and manifested in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then in chapter 11 of our confession, we see the chapter on justification. Chapter 12, the very next chapter is adoption, and then followed by sanctification in 13, and preservation in 17. These concepts are introduced here. They're not elaborated upon. They're not explained to us. Because if if you're a a new Christian, unfamiliar with these terms, you might immediately come to paragraph 5 and think, okay, what is... What is justification? What is adoption? What is sanctification? What, what is glorification? And, and these terms will be explained and developed more fully later on in the confession. But something I want to focus on, there at the end of the, the last, or the, the first phrase in paragraph six, before the semicolon, the last part of that phrase, he has foreordained all the means thereunto. We, we live in an age where confessing God is sovereign uh, in, in, a, in, in an evangelical, kind of a cultural Christian sphere, many will kind of shrug and, and, and say, well, of course God is sovereign. But when it comes to the means that God is ordained, that becomes the place of controversy. That becomes the place of doubt. And is well, God has ordained the end, but everything in the middle is up to who? Men, fallen men, men who don't know their left hand from their right, men who do not are not able to discern good from evil. And so, logically, it doesn't stand. Biblically, it doesn't stand. But but often it's it's just not really examined carefully, and so. One of the things that a confession of faith does, and one of the things that I'm going to show you in our catechism, how it it follows along with our confession, is that it works through these things not only in a scriptural way, in a biblical way, but in a way that's reasonable, orderly, logical even. See, if we we skip ahead to chapter 5, if you turn over a couple pages if you've got your confession open. Turn over to paragraph or chapter five, which is of divine providence. Well, God works out his decree. His eternal decree is worked out in two main spheres one is creation, he's made everything, and then in providence. The providence is the power by which he governs, the power and wisdom by which he governs all things. In paragraph three of the chapter of providence, we see this God in his ordinary providence maketh use of means, yet is free to work without, above, and against them, at his good pleasure. See, our God is a God of means. He is able to do anything by just speaking it. He created all that is, ex nihilo, out of nothing. He just spoke it into existence. He didn't need pre-existing material to make the world. He spoke it into being. But we also know that God, according to the scriptures, uses, ordinarily uses means. He urges the farmer to go out and to plow his field, to plant the seed, to tend to his crops, and by that means he and his family will be fed. He, he urges us as Christians to call upon him for our provision to to exercise faith that he will provide for us but he doesn't say stay in your beds pull up the covers and pray that god will, will give you something to eat for you and your children what does he tell you to do go work ephesians 4 go let the thief no longer steal but let him labor with his own hands so that he will be able to provide for himself and then out of his increase will actually be able to provide for others also it's both sides of the 8th commandment. Don't steal, but that's not the end of the story. Go work. Go work hard. Increase your own estate and the estate of your neighbor at the same time. God makes use of means. And it's interesting in, the, in chapter 5, the footnotes here. God is free to work without means. The footnote there is in Hosea. And, there, and Hosea says, he's speaking about Israel's enemies, and he says, I will conquer them with my own outstretched arm." when you read through the old testament read through the life of david for example as day as as god through david conquers their enemies the enemies of israel god makes use of means david was a was a mighty man of war he was a fearless leader he was a brilliant military commander and he raised up armies and through that means he subdued their adversaries but god says i'm perfectly capable just by my own hand, my own outstretched arm of defeating your enemies. I don't have to have a means. Ordinarily, that's how he, for example, gave land to his people, was an army was raised up, and they went and fought. Men shed blood, and by that means, God gave them the victory. But that wasn't necessary means. But the next reference, the next footnote is in Romans 4, 19-21, with respect to God is free to work above ordinary means. You could turn there if you'd like, but the reference in in Romans 4 is Paul's talking about Abraham and Sarah and their faith and how Sarah was promised by the angel a child when she was, as the scripture says, as good as dead. Sarah was 90. Now ordinarily, in that age and in ours, women don't give birth at 90. That's not normal, is it? But Isaac was promised, a son of promise, was to be raised up. And God used ordinary means of procreation, but he acted above those ordinary means. Again, it's it's normal for a husband and wife to conceive a child and for a woman to give birth to a child. That's ordinary. What is above that ordinary means is to do that at 90 years of age. But then look at the next reference, Daniel chapter 3, verse 27. God is free to work against those ordinary means. The reference there is Daniel and their friends in the fiery furnace. Ordinarily what happens when a furnace is heated up to seven times its normal temperature and men are thrown into it is they are consumed instantly by fire. And what the text of Daniel tells us is that not only were they not consumed, but their clothes were not even consumed. In fact, their clothes did not even smell of smoke. God is free to work against ordinary means. Ordinarily, when a furnace is very hot, things burn. And God worked against that. So this this doctrine of means applies to all of creation. And it applies in a very particular way to God's fulfillment of his eternal decree of election. So what are those means? Listen to John Owen. He says, thereby God saw at once not only whatever was needful for the accomplishing of it, meaning his decree of election, but that which would infallibly affect it. He chose not probable and likely means for it, and such as might do it, unless some great obstruction did arise, such as whose efficacy might be suspended on any conditions and emergencies, but such as should infallibly and inevitably reach the end intended. This is Dr. Renahan quoting from John Owen, and and, and the quote basically says this, God could have chosen means that were likely to accomplish their purpose, or that provided the right circumstances would accomplish the intended end. He could have chosen means whose efficacy, whose effectiveness could have been suspended or could have been interrupted with certain contingencies. And we see this in our lives all the time, don't we? We make plans, and we know those plans can be interrupted, those can be thwarted. You you, you make plans to go on a, a vacation, and right as you're getting ready to leave, I remember as a kid, we were getting ready to leave. We'd packed up, we were getting ready to go on a, on a three or four-day camping trip, and with the, the, we'd spent two days loading up the camper, loading up all the food, packing the tents, getting everything ready. And we're getting we're pulling out of the driveway. We got to the first not even to the first red light. And pow! The engine threw a rod, and the whole trip was interrupted. We had to tow the van back home, and the whole trip was called off. We made plans. And just like that, the plans were interrupted by some other contingency outside of our prediction. God could have chosen such means. And and the default position, I think, of most Christians is somewhere in this nebulous, gray space of thinking God's means are contingent or that God's means can be disrupted, or that because those things are true, any old means will do. But if we think about the certainty of God's decree, the certainty of not even a sparrow falling to the ground, apart from God knowing it, then when we look at something as all-important, is God's decree of election working out in time and space do you think god has left anything to chance do you think god has left anything contingent upon the will of his creatures do you think god has left anything in such a way that it could be interrupted or changed or fallen no, we have to reject that. So then what are these means? Well, we're going to see this worked out later on in, in the confession, but just briefly, in, in fact, you can put in your notes to go and read chapter 14 on saving faith, in, in which we confess that this means is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the word. How is it somebody comes to hear an effectual call but through the word and spirit and believes upon Christ for eternal life. Ordinarily, that's wrought by the ministry of the word. Our catechism is helpful. If you have a copy of it, if you have the little Solid Ground publication that has it in a handy way at the back, you can turn it there. If you don't, it's okay. You can, um, you can listen along. I'm going to begin in chapter th- in par- our question number. 32, and I want you to see how the catechism works through sometimes these concepts that are, it's hard to wrap our arms around, it's hard to wrap our minds around some of these things because they're, they're multi-layered, but the catechism starts in, in, a, in, a, in an accessible place and builds upon these things brick by brick by brick logically and theologically and doctrinally in such a way that even, even our children can begin to grasp the order of things, and the progression of things. So beginning in, this is question 32 in our Baptist Catechism. If you're you're looking at Keech's Catechism, I should have looked that up. The numbers vary a little bit because Keech added a few questions. So I don't remember the number if you're in Keech's. But it's question 32 in our Baptist Catechism. Notice the tie here. In paragraph 6, In paragraph 6 of our confession, we redeem, wherefore they who are elected being fallen Adam are redeemed by Christ. So it's that key word of redemption. We get to paragraph 30, or question number 32, how are we made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ? It's pulling that very same phrase out. And the answer is we are made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ by the effectual application of it, that redemption, to us by his Holy Spirit. Okay, well, the next question is, well, then how? How doth the Spirit apply to us the redemption purchased by Christ? The answer is, the Spirit applyeth to us the redemption purchased by Christ by working faith in us, and thereby uniting us to Christ in our effectual calling. Okay, well, then what is effectual calling? Well, it's the work of the God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery Enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ and renewing our wills, he doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. All right, question 35 then asks What benefits do they that are effectually called partake of in this life? Now listen to the answer, and you'll see that this mirrors exactly paragraph 6 in chapter 3. What benefits do they that are effectually called partake of in this life? they that are effectually called do in this life partake of justification, adoption, sanctification, and the several benefits which in this life do either accompany or flow from them. So see, the benefits are that what we see in the ordo salutis. Justification, adoption, sanctification, and the several benefits. Well then, logically, what happens next is, what is justification? What is adoption? What is sanctification? And the question that you, maybe in your mind, based on the phrasing of question 35, and the several benefits that flow from those. What are those? Well, the catechism anticipates your question. So in question 39, what are the benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification? And the answer is, the benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification are assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Spirit, increase of grace, and perseverance therein to the end. Okay, this is, this is the, the further explanation, but we still haven't gotten to the question or the answer of means. How does this work out? How does God affect this well over the next uh, 40 questions or so 45 or so questions the catechism concerns itself with the righteousness of god the holiness of god revealed in the moral law and so then there is an exposition of the 10 commandments so i want to skip ahead because what what the, the the catechism comes to this conclusion in question 90 what does God require of us that we may escape His wrath and curse due to us for sin? See, here's the righteousness of God revealed to us in the Ten Commandments. What's required in us for, for us to escape His wrath? And the answer is, to escape the wrath and curse of God due to us for sin, God requireth of us faith in Jesus Christ, repentance unto life, with the diligent use of all the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption. So see, now we're tying back together that phrase, how does Christ communicate to us those benefits of redemption? Or I'm sorry, what are those benefits of redemption that we experience in this life? Justification, adoption, sanctification, and preservation. And all the other benefits which flow from those. Well, then the question is how it's with the diligent use of all outward means. Well, then the question immediately comes, okay, well, what are those means then? If, if this is how God accomplishes these things, his eternal decree, things that, that were in the mind of God before he ever created the world, how are those things then worked out in time? How are things worked out in your life? Well, then the, the catechism then asks these questions follow-up questions what is faith in jesus christ what is repentance unto life in questions 91 and 92 then question 93 says what are those outward means what are the outward means whereby christ communicateth to us the benefits of redemption and 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 by the way the use of the word communicate or communicateth it's in, in the older use of the word it doesn't mean simply to tell but to share. It's the same root word when we celebrate the Lord's Supper or communion. We are having fellowship. We are participating in Christ. It is not that we are observing something with one another and we are thinking about and remembering Christ. We are communing with him. We are partaking of him. We are participating in him and with him. And in a similar way, what are those outward means whereby Christ participates or communicates or shares with us? the benefits of redemption. Again, these benefits are justification, adoption, sanctification, preservation, and other benefits which flow from those. Well then, what are the outward means whereby Christ shares those things, participates in those things with us? And the answer is the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances, especially the word, baptism, the word supper, and prayer, all which means are made effectual to the elect for salvation. They're made effectual. And remember, they're made infallibly effectual, immutably effectual because they're rooted and grounded in the eternal purposes and almighty power of God. And they're made effectual, infallibly so, to the elect for salvation. And and you probably remember this. We've already run across this this word before. The use of the word salvation is intended comprehensively. Sometimes in our, our Christian nomenclature, we use the word salvation interchangeably with justification. And that's not entirely wrong, but sometimes it doesn't communicate all that the scriptures communicate to us about salvation. And we may hear, we may even ask someone, are you, are, are you saved? And, and what we mean by that, have you been justified? Uh, have you been made right with God by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? But the scriptures often use the term salvation much more comprehensively. And that's the idea here in the confession and in the catechism is salvation, again, is not only the justification, but your adoption, your sanctification, your preservation, and ultimately, you're saved from this body of death. We will be saved ultimately and finally and eternally, immutably, by the power of Christ in such a way that our, our, this, this corruptible body, this body of corruption, will be clothed in incorruptibility, clothed in eternality, Then question 94 follows through in this and says, How is the Word made effectual to salvation? The Spirit of God maketh the reading, but especially the preaching of the Word, an effectual means of convincing and converting sinners, and of building them up in holiness and comfort through faith, here's the phrase again, unto salvation. It is by the preaching of the Word of God that someone hears and is justified but it's also by the preaching of the word of God ordinarily that someone hears and is sanctified, is, hears and is preserved. And ultimately, it's by the word of God, by the power of the spirit of God, that, that one is will be glorified. Well, then the next question anticipates a question that's in our minds necessarily is how is the word to be read and heard that it may become effectual to salvation? And the answer that the word may become effectual to salvation, we must attend thereunto with diligence, preparation, and prayer, receive it with faith and love, lay it up in your hearts, and practice it in our lives. There is is a burden placed upon us, there is a necessity placed upon us to use the means as God intended. You know, I I have a workshop full of tools. I like to, to work with wood, I like to build things, and, and I like to share those tools with my children and others. But you're required to use the tool as it was intended. Um, if, if you, for example, were caught using a hammer in a way that it was not intended, you will likely lose your hammer privileges for the foreseeable future. For good reason, right? Uh, if you were to use uh, other tools for, re- for, to- for, for purposes for which they were not intended or to accomplish an end that dad did not decree, you may lose those privileges. Well, it's a sloppy analogy, but God has given to us these means that are designed to be used as he intended. And the way that he has intended for the means of his word to be used is with diligence, preparation, prayer, an eager reception of it with faith and love, a storing up of that Word in our hearts, and putting it into practice. We are not hearers only, but doers of the Word of God. The next few questions, and and I won't read through them, but you can can do that on, on your own, works through the ordinances of the Lord's Supper and baptism. And again, the question is, how do these become effectual means of salvation? And this is where it becomes vitally important that we understand the scope of that word salvation. Because we we do not confess that one is justified by means of baptism, do we? Or that one is justified by means of the Lord's Supper. But we do mean that one is sanctified by those means. One is built up in grace. One is preserved by those means. So we find that we come back now with with all those things in mind, come back to chapter 3, in paragraph six, as God hath appointed the elect unto glory, so he hath by the eternal and most free purpose of his will foreordained all the means thereunto. And he's done so infallibly. He's done so immutably. He's done so based on his own eternal purpose and wisdom, which is why, and I'm going to reread the quote from John Owen, this is why Owen, and we can join him and give our hearty amen, thereby God saw at once not only whatever was needful for the accomplishing of his decree of election, but that which would infallibly affect it. He chose not probable and likely means for it, and such as might do it, unless some great obstruction did arise, such as those efficacy, might be suspended on any conditions or emergencies, but he chose such as should infallibly and inevitably reach the end intended. And then we could add, according to the work of Christ by the power of his Spirit. So the, the consequences for us, the application for us, if God has decreed these things from eternity, And if from eternity he has also appointed the means thereof, then how ought we to respond? We ought to submit ourselves to the means that God has appointed. And and, and believe, trust our Father, that he knows what's good for us. Trust our older brother, our Lord Jesus Christ, that he is sufficient and the means that he has ordained are enough for us and that they will accomplish his intended effect, his intended purpose. And that we will believe that the Holy Spirit is willing and able to apply these benefits of Christ's redemption to us in time and space, to use the phrase of our confession, in due season. Because that in due season applies not only to the moment you become a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, but it also applies to those other benefits of redemption. Sometimes we can get frustrated with our, the pace of our own sanctification, can't we? You ever find yourself frustrated with your progress or lack of progress in sanctification? And, and we continue to apply the same means and believe that in due season, God will provide what we need according to the means that he has appointed. And of course, God is free to work outside of these ordinary means. Um, There are many who have testimonies of of conversion, of hearing the gospel in an unorthodox way or from an obscure source. That exception just proves the rule, doesn't it? Ordinarily. These are the means that God has appointed for us. And I've run long. We're going to close here. We'll pick up next, next time next week looking at the last paragraph which really gives us some exhortations in how we hold on to this doctrine um we could take a short straw poll and and it would be probably 100 percent of you have found yourself in or or witnessed controversies on these doctrines sometimes even around you know a dinner table with extended family members with with dear friends Committed Christians, and who wrestle to believe and own as their own this doctrine of God's unconditional election, this doctrine of God's unmerited grace. And so, how do we hold this? See, this is not just our age in which this topic, this subject has been uh, a place of controversy but in every age of the church. Um, Man has not changed. The will of man has not changed. The the predilections and tendencies of fallen men have not changed. And we want to grab for ourselves the, the credit for justification. We want to grab for ourselves some measure of credit for our own righteousness. And so these things have always been controversial. And the last paragraph gives us some exhortations on how we approach this, this doctrine, how we hold this doctrine in our own hearts and minds. Well, let's, let's pray, and I'm sorry I did not leave opportunity for, for questions this morning, but we'll pick up next week and we'll have some time to kind of think about the, the, the chapter as a whole and work through some questions. So let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your mercy to us. We're grateful for your word, and, and I pray that you will help us uh, to, to believe these things as true, to order our lives as if we believe them as true, to submit ourselves to your word as if we really believed that our very eternity depended upon it. Uh, we pray for your help. Holy Spirit, we pray that you apply these things to our hearts. Help us to store up your word in our hearts in such a way that we not sin against you not only with our hands, our eyes, but even our thoughts, that we would not sin against our triune God. We ask this in Christ's name.